Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Hello, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, and I'm pleased to have with me today Tim Cockrell. This past Sunday, Tim preached from the text of Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 35. And in the coming minutes, we're going to be discussing that text and Tim's comments. But but first, there are likely some who are listening who don't know that this is Tim's very first podcast episode with us since joining us here in ministry at Grace Baptist Church. And Tim, we're very excited to have you here with us. And uh, thanks specifically for taking the time today to join us on the podcast. Thanks, Bart. I'm really excited to be here, and I'm just so thankful for everyone's warm welcome. Uh, Katie and I and the family have just felt overwhelmed by the graciousness and generosity of everyone, and we're really excited to be a part of this staff team and this elder team. We are confident that God has great things in store for us personally, as well as for the church. And so I'm thankful also for the podcast, because as you might imagine, it's very difficult to get everything into one sermon that you want to. And so this allows us to kind of spill over and continue the conversation. So I'm thankful. Uh, you were rolling through, what, 21 verses uh, pretty quickly the other day. And I uh, I know I noted, uh, boy, he's rolling through it and, and very appropriately. But I know it, we're looking forward to really fleshing this out a little bit more here and and today and throughout the coming months and years. Absolutely. Well, Tim, uh, there was some good-natured ribbing, you'll recall, last (laughs) week amongst the elders. We were talking about your first sermon as an elder at Grace being from this particular passage. And then next week, you're going to be sharing God's perspective on divorce. Some might call that a deck stacked against you, but uh, I know Sunday you showed genuine excitement about this passage. Can you talk a little bit more about that excitement and what you were uh, what you were talking about there? Absolutely. Well, it's certainly not because I'm excited about conflict or church <laughs> discipline, let's just be clear, but because I believe topics like resolving conflict and extending forgiveness and even God's plan for marriage are so incredibly practical and pastoral. Because when we talk about, let's just say, dealing with conflict, every one of us almost immediately thinks of some situation that's gone badly. You know, some relationship that is irreparably broken, it would seem. Some small comment that blew up into a much bigger problem or a a spark of a situation that ignited a wildfire that seemed to burn out of control. And so we know that conflict among sinners is going to be inevitable. And so how we handle it becomes so important because as I said on Sunday, conflict is actually the gateway to intimacy. It's how we deal with the sin that divides us, the differences of expectations. So if we're able to deal with it in healthy ways, we develop a community that is growing in unity as well as maturity. And so for me to have that be my first sermon from the outset allows us to kind of establish, hey, what are the biblical expectations for how we resolve differences and conflict within community? How should we expect that a brother is going to deal with these things when they come up? Because when handled poorly, it has the potential to divide a church. And when handled well, it can be a catalyst for incredible spiritual growth. Certainly. And, you know, you you come in as a newbie here at Grace Baptist Church. Uh, this may come as a surprise to you, but we've had conflict in really? the past. Yeah, yeah, we have. And I know you come from uh, from Utopia in uh, Massachusetts. <laughs> but uh, you are coming in. You and I were just talking about a, a conflict uh, before we went on the microphone mm-hmm. uh, that 
occurred within our church uh, over the past number of years, mm-hmm. and uh, it, it's difficult stepping into something, but God does have an order, and God is a God of order, mm-hmm. and he shares with us how to keep moving on, seeking order. Absolutely. And restoration. And that's going to be a key word. I know today it was a key word on Sunday, mm-hmm. the idea of restoration. Well, as we begin to dive into this text, I think we need to go back to the beginning of chapter 18. And I would like to revisit a couple of points that Thad Franz noted in his sermon from last week, a week and a half ago now as we are here at the microphone. Mm-hmm. At the top of his message, he shared the what he called the big idea or the main idea of Jesus' teaching in verses 1 through 14. He said, greatness in God's eyes is genuine believers who seek to be faithful in humility, holiness, and love. I think that's really a great segue into today's discussion of forgiveness and restoration. I agree. And I'm really glad that that you are drawing out those principles because even as I reflected on it, and we were discussing this briefly in the preaching team meeting yesterday, the context of Matthew 18 and what Thad did such a great job of unpacking shapes so much of what Jesus is teaching us about in in the instructions of how to deal with conflict. So, you know, just those three things that Thad mentioned, humility, that there's no place for self-righteous condemnation or condescension toward those, but rather that if greatness is about humility, that we've got to make sure our heart is in the right posture before we ever go to the other person. That's you know what Jesus reminds us there in Matthew chapter seven. Right. You know, and then the second one is holiness. That if all we have is humility, we might shy, shy away from conflict because we feel like, well, who am I to address sin in somebody else's life? When Meekness, I, gentleness. Sure. Exactly. But if we have a passion for holiness, we say this sin does not represent who we're called to be as holy people serving a holy God. And we recognize that sin is so dangerous and destructive that we move toward the other person in what I called corrective discipleship because we love them and we want to see them avoid the brokenness that inevitably comes from sin. And then the third thing that he mentioned that, of course, is kind of the wrapper over the whole thing is love that our whole motive here is not to set them straight or to prove ourselves right, but because just as the good shepherd pursues the wayward sheep, that they might be brought home and they rejoice when that happens, our whole point in engaging the other person is because we care about them. And if we're engaging in conflict, many times it's risky, it's painful. But if we're doing it from a right heart attitude, even if the results aren't what we wish they were, we can recognize that we're doing what God has called us to do as we live in community with one another. Tim, you you used a word there in that explanation. You used the word risky. And I want to I want to focus on that for a minute. <clears throat> I can think back to a number of conflicts in my life or in the life of the church where we have tried to do some right things. And the risk is that it either goes well or it doesn't go well. Rarely does it lay there in the middle. (laughs) And I can think of a number of times where it escalated Mm -hmm. beyond what we could have ever thought might happen in a bad way. Mm -hmm. And it got to a point that it actually got worse because we sought to do what God has instructed us to do. Or maybe I personally have done this in business or in, in family relationships. Can you talk about that? I mean, it, there's no guarantee that following Matthew chapter 18, the protocols of 
going to an individual, going back with one or two others, and then telling it to the church. That's not a panacea. No, it isn't. And that's why when we approach it, we don't do it because of this pragmatic, uh, it's going to get us to the end that we want. We approach it out of obedience in faith. And sometimes, like you said, it's going to escalate. It's going to make the problem seemingly worse. But that's because we don't have control over how the other person will respond. Just like as parents, we're called to correct our children, but we can't control whether or not they ultimately choose to follow Jesus. And so I think we have to constantly keep our heart posture right that we're doing it, not because we're going to fix the other person, but we're doing it because that's what God's called us to do. And we leave the results up to him. And that's actually quite freeing. Because then we don't have to sit there and say, oh, I must have messed something up, or if I had just said this or, or done this differently. We're going to do it imperfectly, of course. Sure. But if we overcome our fear and go directly to the person, we ultimately trust God with the results. So last week, Byron Shear and Trent Rogers, they joined me to discuss the biblical teaching on the local church mm-hmm. and the importance of the local church. In that conversation, one of us mentioned, I forget who it was, but mentioned that a healthy local church necessarily practices church discipline as described here in Matthew chapter 18. Agree or disagree? I absolutely agree. Good, good. I was wondering. <laughs> oh, good. Okay. Well, and I would also add to that that when we think of church discipline, often our mind immediately goes to what I would call the third step, that is where we're bringing it to the church. But I think the healthiest churches are focused primarily on Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, that at the interpersonal level, when that problem is still small, we are proactively and redemptively addressing sin and conflict with our relationships. And if we do that, I'm convinced that 90% of the conflict we deal with will get resolved at that level. But I would also say healthy churches have to be willing to follow all the way through to where they're telling it to the church. And to your point, sometimes I've had people who are more pragmatic say, why are we even going to go through this? You know, it, it exposes us to risk of being viewed as unloving. They haven't responded in humility yet, or they want to withdraw their membership, and so let's just let them go. And I think the whole point of Jesus' parable there in Matthew chapter 18 is that the time the sheep needs the shepherd the most is when they're wandering out into the wilderness. And so whether it feels loving or not, we are called to pursue them and to address that sin for their sake as well as for the purity of the church. Well, let's take that word discipline and take it back to some roots, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we have a, uh, a call in the scriptures to make disciples. Right. Same root word. <clears throat> I wonder if we don't sometimes look at discipline in a negative way, whereas I wonder if God isn't saying that more in a positive way. No, we are to be disciplined. We are to be iron sharpening iron, and we automatically think of it from a negative standpoint, from the minus. But we should we not be looking at it from the positive? Should not a church be a disciplining, developing discipline in the body instead of just waiting for something, a sin to rise up and dealing with it at that point? Right, absolutely. And and I think the Lord says in Hebrews, you know, those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And so if we use the parenting analogy, because we love our children, we don't let them just do whatever they want. You know, we set boundaries, we give clear instruction, and we also give clear consequences when they go down that road. And that's not punitive. It's not because we hate them or want to hurt them, but it's because we love them. 
and we want to develop in them patterns that the Bible says are going to result in flourishing rather than in brokenness and conflict and any number of different problems. So looking at it from the positive to keep the negative from happening, hopefully. exactly Good. Well, the idea of removing one from a local fellowship, and that is the, we'll call it the nuclear option. That seems mm-hmm. to be a word or a phrase today. <laughs> it, it, it's an idea that has many critics in our society and even from within the church, uh, local churches around us, uh, perhaps even from our, our own local church. There mm-hmm. would be people say, I don't think we should do that. These individuals view such a practice as unloving, punitive, judgmental, and those are just a few of the adjectives (laughs) that you might hear. How do you respond to those charges? Well, it's not surprising that such a countercultural process could easily be misconstrued because we live in a society in which tolerance and acceptance of whatever it is that makes you happy are viewed as the highest virtues. But we know that sin is blinding and that it's binding, that it never provides the fulfillment that it desires. And in fact, it leaves brokenness and destruction in its wake. And so if we love someone, as James chapter 5, verses 19 through 20 tells us, that if we turn a brother from their sin, we've, we've actually rescued them from a world of danger then we're going to proactively address their sin. That begins at the personal level, but ultimately it's going to to go to the broader congregational level. So going back to that parenting analogy, if I really love my children, I'm not going to let them just do whatever they want to because they'd stay up till midnight and eat candy for dinner. But that would end up making them actually miserable, not happy. And so we need one another because they're all every one of us deals with times where sin deceives us. And we think that it's actually going to fulfill us when, in fact, it's going to leave us empty and disappointed. And that's why it's so important to then go proactively, but also with a proper heart attitude. Because to be honest, sometimes this process gets a bad reputation because it's been handled poorly. Because churches have treated it like a witch trial. They've approached it in a more punitive way to really inflict shame rather than to keep that focus on we want to see this person repent and be restored. And so we have to make sure that we aren't falling victim or falling into that trap right. of having the wrong attitude. Um, but discipline is always going to be painful. It has a purpose. And by God's grace, we want to just bathe the whole process in prayer that ultimately he would grant that person repentance so that person would turn from their sin and be reconciled. And let's be sure we, we say... The pain comes from the sin. The pain is initiated by the sin. The restoration process is trying to deal with that and to heal. It's right. supposed to be healing. Absolutely. Well, in, in Galatians 6, you're very aware of this, we have what we might call a parallel passage. I might call it a commentary passage mm-hmm. from Paul. Paul's instructing the churches in the Galatian region in this matter of church discipline. Let me just read those two verses. I want to go back to the uh, first two verses in chapter 6 anyway. I want to go back to a, a few of the uh, the uh, phrases in there. It says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. So uh, let's parse out and get a, a few of these phrases. Let me get your commentary on these. First of all, you who are spiritual. So I think that goes right back to our posture Mm -hmm. uh, of humility as well as spiritual maturity. 
that we don't want to go just to be right or to set someone straight or to tell them off. Sometimes that's a temptation when we've been hurt. But that the definition of greatness in Matthew 18, of humility, and the posture of getting the log out of your own eye in Matthew mm-hmm. chapter 7, warns us that we need to be deeply aware of our own need for grace before we ever go to try to correct someone else's. So we're preaching the gospel to ourselves as a necessary precondition to addressing sin in someone else's life. In other parts of his writings, uh, Paul talks about being filled with the Spirit. Exactly. That's basically what he's talking about here, it seems like. Yes. Another phrase, restore him. I think that focuses on the goal. You know, that in Matthew 18, when Jesus says, if he repents, then you have won your brother, that that's the whole goal of the process, is to see the person turn from sin and be healed. And if I'm not mistaken, and I didn't do great exegesis here, but I think the principle or the picture here is actually the restoration of something that was broken, like a broken bone, you know? And so if we are, are binding them, um, so to speak, in a, in a gentle and kind way, it produces wholeness where there was brokenness. Paul mentions here a spirit of gentleness. And that's so important, isn't it? Because our natural tendency is to perhaps be a little harsher. We're often more harsh with other people than we are with ourselves. And so it's just a reminder that just as God has been gracious and gentle and kind to us, we need to demonstrate that same principle toward others. We're not beating them over the head with scripture or trying to punish them, but that we are lovingly moving toward them out of love for them. And if you've ever had somebody confront you, you can tell the difference. Oh, never someone... a need, never a need to. <laughs> um, you, know. you can tell the difference, though, if somebody genuinely cares about you versus if they're just trying to, to be a sin manager. And, right. and I read somewhere, if you know someone loves you, they can tell you anything. And I think that just reminds us that that relationship is so essential in this process. Well, and that that word gentleness that we have here in the English Standard Version elsewhere is translated humbleness, humility, mm-hmm. meekness, Matthew 5, 5. Right. So, good. Okay, an- another phrase, keep watch on yourself. I think this is such an important reminder because it's so easy to fall into sinful behaviors when we've been sinned against. So that's why he says, keep watch over yourself that you don't fall into temptation. And I have to be honest, for a while as I studied this text, I used to think that that meant like if you were dealing with someone's sexual sin, make sure that you don't get ideas about how you might sin in the same way. But I think it's often more the sin of gossip, the sin of judgmentalism, Mm. the the sin of being harsh or condemning. Haughty. Exactly. That we might think, oh, I would never do such a thing. And in so doing, we've fallen into just a different pattern of Mm. sin. And so, again, just preaching the gospel to ourselves to make sure that our heart is in the right place. One final phrase here, bear one another's burdens. And I think that speaks to the communal aspect of this. Mm-hmm. You know, as much as we want to focus on bringing two or three others or bringing it to the congregation if they won't listen as a, a steps in a process, underlying this is a theology of Christian community that we are called to be one another's keepers, if you want to put it that way. That it's not just the elder's responsibility to shepherd or the pastor's responsibility, but that we are to bear one another's burdens, and that involves confronting and dealing with sin proactively. Okay, so there's a person listening today who says, oh, golly, this person sinned against me. I, I really don't want to deal with it because it's just scary. Mm-hmm. It's risky. We talked about that mm-hmm. word. What, what encouragement do you have that person for that person? Well, I would 
first of all, encourage them by saying, I understand. <laughs> you know, all it takes is just a few experiences to deal with getting burned that causes us to shrink back in fear. But again, this is not a matter of what is comfortable or what is convenient, but what is obedient. Mm. And so both for our sake, because a root of bitterness can easily grow in our heart when we've been sinned against, as well as for the other person's sake, if there genuinely is a sin that has taken root in their heart, we need to follow Jesus' instructions that if a brother sins against you, go. Don't delay. Don't go talk to other people. Don't you know? think about it over and over again until you get so frustrated. And you trust God with the results. And that is scary. And there are times where it can go badly. But when it's all said and done, we're living for an audience of one. And if we fall victim to being a people pleaser, many times that means we're going to shrink back from what we've been called to do rather than stepping forward in faith. And being, and the word you're talking about, obedience, loving one another, and uh, that communal aspect, great. Thanks, Tim, for that. I, I, we alluded earlier, you're going to give us a, a peek, hopefully, into what's coming next week in the whole area of divorce. Absolutely. It's such a sensitive and important topic, and one in which many Christians have, I believe, perspectives that have not been shaped by the Bible, but have been shaped by our experience Mm -hmm. and by our culture. Because let's face it, every one of us have been touched by divorce in some way. Many of those who are listening know that my wife, Katie, her parents were divorced when she was young, and she still has been affected by what that meant for her family dynamic, her relationship with her dad. And so I want to approach this with sensitivity, but also with clarity. And I think many times when we come to a passage like this, people then focus and gravitate on what are the exceptions? Okay, so in what situations can Christians get a divorce? But Jesus very intentionally says, you guys are so focused on the exception, let's remind ourselves of the rule that God created marriage to be sacred and permanent. He he designed it to be a covenant in which one man and one woman are united for a lifetime. And so rather than us just focusing on the teaching on divorce, which is certainly appropriate, we want to hold high God's standard and ideal of marriage because that affects every one of us, whether we're married, single, divorced, widowed, whatever it might be, that as we understand God's plan for the family, then we can recognize that when that breaks down, there are certain provisions that the Bible provides, but ultimately we want to just continue resting in the gospel and its sufficiency for whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Great. And specifically, that will be uh, verses uh, which passage? 1 through 13, I believe. Okay, very good. Very good. Well, Tim, thanks for your preparation. Thanks for sharing with us today. We appreciate your, your good work. My pleasure. Well, Tim Cockrell has been our guest on this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace, and we've been discussing his recent sermon from Matthew chapter 18. You can access each sermon from Grace Baptist Church as well as each of our podcast episodes by visiting gracecedarville.org on the World Wide Web and clicking podcast on the media tab. We also encourage you to share your questions and comments with us each week by emailing them to contact at gracecedarville.org. That's contact at gracecedarville.org. Plan to join us next week as we move into Matthew chapter 19. And until then, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this week's episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.